Hello and welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. For those of you that haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, as well as provide some insight into some of the personalities who work behind the scenes, often without much recognition, to help organise, run and maintain sport. On today's show, our guest is Nick DeMarco QC. Many of you already know him from his extensive writing and his work within football. Nick is one of the leading sports law and particularly football law barristers in the world. In this show, Nick talks about his route into the law, how he developed a sports practice, his favourite cases and provides some advice for those who are looking to break into sports law, build a practice both as a barrister or as a solicitor. There's loads of funny anecdotes within this interview I found it interesting. I hope you do the same. Of course, if you like what we do and you like the podcast, please do tell people about it on LinkedIn, on Twitter, my handle or on Instagram. Uh, my handle is at SPCOTT. You could obviously use the Law in Sport handle at Law in Sport. Other than that, I hope you enjoy the show. So I'm sitting in Blackstone Chambers in London, overlooking the Thames, and my guest has assured me this is the best room in Blackstone Chambers, and I think I would agree with him. Our guest today is Nick DeMarco QC. He's, well, referred to by many people as Mr. Football, which I quite like. Um, He has an impressive CV um, by any stretch of the imagination in, in the legal profession, but his particular expertise and what he's really well known for is sports law, and in particular his work within football, hence the Mr. Football tag that he's either uh, now officially got <laughs> here. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar with Nick, and I think most of you will be through his excellent writing, he's a Lawrence Sport editorial board member and he runs the Blackstone blog. Uh, he's also been the author and editor of uh, Football and the Law book. He's contributed to... Um, Oh, I've gone blank. Lewis and Taylor. Thank Lewis you. and Thank Taylor. Yes, yeah, <laughs> how embarrassing. Uh, Lewis and Taylor. I was thinking I could see the grey book on my desk, but the um, uh, Lewis and Taylor. He's um, got an outstanding um, uh, reputation and career. He's referred to as one of the leading sports lawyers by Chambers and Partners, by Legal 500. His practice covers a variety of uh, areas such as commercial claims, disciplinary doping hearings, claims concerning the interpretation of footballers and agents, contracts and transfers fees, sport sponsorship cases and employment-related claims, and he regularly advise on, advises on the interpretation of and possible challenges of sports bodies' rules. He regularly appears... Um, <laughs> he's, uh, he's just <laughs> opening a bowl. Nick regularly appears in national and international courts and specialises in sports tribunals, including the Court of Arbitration for Sport, FIFA, and all of the UK sports tribunals. He's got, and you'll see it under the podcast, an unbelievable list of clients. And I was trying to count them earlier and I got bored counting, (laughs) so I gave up. But it must be in the sort of like 50 to 100. Um, But more interestingly, um, Nick also has um, done a lot of work in media and on employment-related claims. Now... For disclosure, Nick is also a friend of mine and he's on the Law and Sport editorial board. He also was the catalyst uh, for the Law and Sport mentoring scheme, 
um, to be set up and was a real sort of driver for that um, last year in, in both our annual conference and privately, trying to create more opportunities for people to have access to careers in law, but also, of course, sports law. Nick, thank you so much for taking time out. Thank you, Sean. Uh, for doing this. It was something I wanted to do for a while. I know we've, you've been on the podcast before um, on very specific issues around football agents, but I, just w- I really wanted to, to, one, formally congratulate you. I did it already, but I'll do it again Thank on the podcast for, for taking Silk last year. Um, I think like with, with John Taylor and then with Nina Goodamali and others, I think that there's, there's just a plethora of, 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 of uh, now really leading figures in the legal market who are now getting recognised for their for their work in sport mm. and in particular yours um, I think was a, a great milestone another great milestone um, so congratulations for that I think it's positive I think everyone agrees it's mm. super positive for, for the sports market yeah. and the sports law market one of the things that came out at that time and obviously we've been chatting many times over drinks at the end of conferences was about your career before law can you give some background into how you got into law in the first place because you, you had a rather, um, let's say, different route. Unconventional. Yeah, untraditional, I guess. Yes, untraditional, it. perhaps, yeah. 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 Non-traditional would be the yeah. way I say it. Yeah. Um, well, I left school when I was 16 or 17 before A-levels. I didn't do A-levels and I didn't uh, go to university, obviously. And I did a number of odd jobs and I ended up being a film technician and cleaning film was the first job we did. And then eventually worked my way up to be a film and video editor and did that. Started working freelance quite early. Did quite a bit of that, but it was a precarious living back in those days. Not much of a living, um, but fun. And it wasn't really until I was about to approach my 30th birthday, which is a big landmark, that I thought... I better do something with my life and get some qualifications. Um, I'd been also a trade union activist and uh, quite political and used to spend a lot of time trying to persuade people of things. So a friend of mine said, well, why don't you be a lawyer? And I, still having that kind of um, immediate, youthful approach to things, said, well, it would be I'd be in my mid-30s by the time I qualified. Um, so, you know, that's like hundreds of years away, <laughs> and what's the point? And he said, it, well, it's better than being in your mid-30s with no qualifications, which was an obvious thing, but not the way I used to think when I was younger. So I then went to study law, did an access course at Birkbeck, uh, who I still now sometimes teach for, I r- really respect what they do, was lucky enough as a mature student to get taken on at UCL in London, studied law there, was lucky enough to get a first there and then lucky go enough, on yeah, to... Of course, lucky enough. Well, <laughs> there might be some hard work in there as well. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard work too, but it's, you know, if I tried to do that when I was younger, I probably would have never been able to. So I think it, it helped that by that stage, I knew what I wanted to do. That was to try and be a lawyer. And then uh, eventually ended up getting a pupillage here at Blackstone Chambers, which is um, very fortunate. And um, I've been here ever since. Wow, that's, that's great. And how did you find that during that process? Like, because that's the real shift. So I know that it, you you had the intention to shift across, but that's you know, from someone who, again who I was like you, I left school at sixteen, you know, worked in law, but in the you know in the back end of things rather than uh, you know as a lawyer. Um, 
and coming into it, it was very different when I started to actually be more involved in the actual, the, you know, the, the law itself. Um, how did you find that culturally? And Because uh, I think well, it's similar to a lot of athletes have the same... Th- same there were, there's some real ups and downs, and I think looking back at it with a little more self-confidence now than I might have had before, um, you're, you're never as good as you think you are, and you're never as bad as you think you are. I, I remember when I started at university thinking I, 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 there was no way I could do it. In my first year, I was probably in the bottom third wow. of the class. Everyone else had been doing A-levels, had been sort of trained to do exams. And so although I thought I was smart, I wasn't good at, at that side of things. Yeah. I wasn't academic. Um, and then in my second year, I suddenly took off. Um, I was very fortunate with mooting, started winning lots of prizes in advocacy and ended up getting first class results and thinking, oh, I'm brilliant, the best student. And then I did my pupillage and suddenly I felt stupid again compared to people who'd all gone through the same path and been, you know, the best in their university. And suddenly it's in an even more competitive area. What was the shift? What was the mental shift then from being like bottom and then shifting through, was it the mooting that gave you confidence or did you work out? You know, it was. It was more than anything else. It was a mooting that helped me because what I liked, and most of the moots thinking back at now, they were sort of on contractual appeal points back in those days that we used to argue about. And you'd be set a problem and then you'd think, well, how do I persuade the person I'm, you know, so I can win the competition? And then I would study it, but because it was for a goal that I wanted to do, I wanted to win this competition, I'd really study it hard and I'd think of every possible argument and every question they might ask me. And that approach, which is the approach we take as barristers often in preparing for a case, that approach to, to law made it much more interesting and, and exciting for me. I think that's a really good point and it's something that you know people come up to me up with law and sport law students and go, oh, you know, it really helped me for my law degree because it, it suddenly re- it resonated with them. It could be music, it could be media, it could be another area. Yeah. But it has that. It has to have that resonance and yeah. uh, meaning. That, um, uh, yeah, in, uh, I guess meaning. Mm. Um, that's fascinating. And so when you got into Blackstone Chambers, obviously, you know, known for being the leading sports chambers in the world, um, <laughs> how did you get into sports law when mm. you were here? Did you have to go and seek it out, or were you fortunate? Um, how did it how did it come about? Well, first of all, I had not heard of sports law when I went to, to when I started. I did my pupillage here in two thousand and one, so it it did exist then, but it doesn't have anything like the profile it has now. It certainly wasn't a subject I came across in university, and it wasn't one of the reasons I applied to Blackstone Chambers. It wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't on my horizon at all. What did you um, want to do? I wanted to be a human rights lawyer, public oh. law and and all that sort of thing, um, which was a good reason to choose Blackstone because it, it was and still is one of the highest profile chambers in, in that area. And I remember the clerk saying to me, um, either during pupillage or when I, when I got taken on, that you know when, when you're here in chambers you've got to do a bit of everything. You've got to to do commercial work, employment work, public law, which is with with the human rights and so on. And I remember saying to them, thinking, you know, I know everything now because I'm I'm in my (laughs) mid-30s being taken on and I'm not just out of university. I know what I want to do. It's human rights and public law. You don't need to tell me to do everything. I know exactly what I want to do. And they said, look, Nick, just try it. Just do everything. 
And within about a year, I found I much preferred commercial law and employment law. I preferred the, the battle, the, the combat, if you like, because um, there's more advocacy, there's more cross-examination, there's more tactics often. Um, and I, I, I just, I, and there's more people, you're, more, you're, you're less dealing with regulation and you're more dealing with people and disputes. So counterintuitively, I found I preferred those areas. Um, but you asked me about sports law, and the, the 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 reason I got into that at first was luck again, because I think a lot a lot that you get in life is luck, but it's also making luck. So I I was fortunate to pick up a bit of a case, which was for Swindon Town FC back in the days against uh, Neil Razor Ruddock, who yeah. was a former England and Liverpool player and Queen's Park Rangers player, by the way. Um, and it, he was near the end of his career. He was injured. He wasn't playing. And his salary, because of the contract Swindon had arranged, was about a third of the turnover, not the profit, but the turnover of the club. And the club was nearly in administration. So they just stopped paying his wages, which obviously you can't do. It's not lawful, <laughs> but that's what they did. He brought a claim against them. Um, there was probably no defence to the claim. In the meantime, they got an FA Cup match against Oxford, £100,000 from the BBC. He brought a freezing injunction against the club, which someone much more grand and senior than me did. And then they said, well, someone very cheap, I was in my first year, needs to go along where you can't defend the case to a Bristol Employment Tribunal to deal with the underlying case. And I went along and felt very frustrated that that it was an unwinnable case. There was nothing I could do. Yeah. So I was lucky that the chairman of the club was there, the player was there, the agent was there, and I managed to get everybody speaking and worked out a commercial deal that solved the problem and settled the case and settled the injunction and meant that um, the player could leave the club but his wages would be paid over a period of time that the club could manage. And I, I think that was a good example uh, of something that it's not strictly legal. It's, it was quite, quite a commercial mm. approach, but it, it gave the solution to the client that they needed and it meant that solicitor then, next time he had a football case, sent it to me and I enjoyed it. And next time I had a sniff of such a case, I worked twice as hard and it, it all started from there, really. Well, you mentioned something there, which I think is interesting. I always say we need more non-legal solutions to legal problems. Yeah. And that's what that was. That yeah. was you know, sometimes it's, you were saying a bit more about the people as opposed to the regulations, and that's a great example. Yeah. Um, and so, so it just went from there. Yeah. And then as you were sort of navigating, you know, you're in a, a chambers renowned for, for its sports or work with very high-profile uh, barristers. That must present its own challenge. I think, you know, the bar is really interested because it's super competitive. You have to work collegiately to a degree, but everyone's also gunning for their own business. Um, how did you uh, navigate that? Because you know you need to get experience from your seniors, uh, but you also have to pave your own way. So obviously that was the start of you paving your own way. Then how did you work uh, within your, with your colleagues in chambers? And the reason I ask this is because I'm sure there'll be many people listening, wondering, how, you know, they may be yeah. in a similar position, yeah. how they can do the yeah. same. Yeah. Well. That, I mean, there are a lot of lovely people in Chambers who, who've, I've worked with, um, Ian Mill, uh, Michael Belloff, Adam Lewis, Jane Mulcahy in particular, those four 
done bits of work with them through the years. That's helped. And the clerks have helped me because I said I really want to do this work. But as much as anything, it's also been you decide you want to do the work. And with me, I went out and tried to get it myself. So one of the things I did, not not so much in a calculated way, it was it was partly just out of interest, is the club I support, QPR, was in financial dire straits. It had no money at all. It was in League One. Um, I'm going back to 2004, 2005 now, so quite a long time ago. I just started picking up some some of this sort of football work. I'd, I'd in fact been instructed by QPR in a paid case, and I suddenly thought, I support this club. I, you know, I go every week. Why don't I see if I can help them on the legal side? So I wrote to them and went and met them, and then they said, yes, they need the help. And suddenly I was advising on, you know, how you deal with managers' contracts or caterers' contracts or sponsors or um, everything, just dealing with everything, wasn't getting paid for it, um, all a little stressful, but the learning curve was great. And, of course, you also meet people as well, and you start to network and know people. And it, it, it just meant that the next time I had a, a another football case, I was better able to deal with it. And and eventually I became a director of the club for a small period. And and that uh, that learning curve in particular about how the industry works and meeting meeting agents, meeting players and, and so on, uh, I found very useful in then building up my own practice and my own reputation. And that must be, I think you, the, the point you make there is really that you it gave you a better understanding of not only the industry but people's motivations within the industry, right? So you can see, one of the things I see is that sometimes people, again, superficially understand it but I don't really get what a manager's motivations are, what the player's motivations are, the agents, etc. And so it can lead them to sometimes to the wrong conclusion. Um, so, yes. uh, and thanks for answering. That was one of my questions. So you just stole one of my questions. <laughs> uh, it was great. Um, I was always curious about how that how that came about. I've never really asked you. Just, um, so thanks for that. And so, so you've built on from there. Now, one of the, the the I would say your your strengths is your ability to you write and communicate well obviously i've seen you, you've chaired obviously you'd expect uh, qc to be very good at, <laughs> at chairing discussions but obviously you chaired a fantastic panel for us at last year's annual conference and you've spoken at many of our events we've done the football one together last year but one of the things that i think you know i think i've said this to you before person like you know over a drink and and so forth was that but you've got an, an uncanny ability uh to write really well you can you're a very good communicator and maybe that's from the politics, mm. you know, maybe you know, it is. Yeah. background. Yeah. Um, can you talk about how that has helped your career? Because you, you, I know that you do it because you're a bit like Daniel Gee is the same, and uh, with uh, Jake Cohen and others, they love doing social media, they love doing blogs, they love writing, and therefore what they do is very good because they enjoy it. Mm. I know that you enjoy writing as well, but can you just talk about that? Because I think that's been an important element of. Uh, maybe I'm wrong in saying that, mm. but I think that's been a, a, a positive contributor to your career development. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that um, once you decide that you want to be a sports lawyer, let's say, in, in my case, um, one of the ways you do it is by trying to raise your profile by writing about cases or sports law and so on. So, again, quite early on, I was trying to do that. Uh, probably not as prolifically as people do it now because 
again, when I started, we used to do a, a, a bulletin that was on paper and we'd send it out to clients. It's all completely changed now in just 10 years or so. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's helpful writing and, and certainly the football book that we brought out in this last year, which was by far the biggest project I've been involved in in writing and took up a lot of time and, and meant if, to a certain extent sacrificing work and fees to work on it. But it was really worth it, um, not only because uh, hopefully it, it raises everybody's profile who's involved in it, one of the great things about writing is you also have to learn. It's the same with teaching. Um, you don't, when you're displaying your opinions on something, you don't want to get it wrong. You've got to get it right. And so you've got to understand the, the problem or the case or the cases if you're writing a chapter about something. And then it's very useful. I mean, I, I, I kind of wrote the book that I thought would be useful for myself because then I get a call about a case and I'm not joking, I do turn to my book often and look in the index <laughs> and, oh, here's the answer in a certain paragraph. And I do find that happens sometimes. And that's what you want. You want to be able to have that kind of writing that's actually useful to people. Um, I agree with you. That's one of the reasons why, you know, the only reason why I know my, my limited knowledge of things in sports law is because all they've had all these excellent authors like yourself who have written for us or submitted articles in the past um, we've worked with. And it upskills you because you have to, if you're going, if we're going to publish something, we have to understand it internally, yeah. right? And you have to explain it to the editorial board members or to others, and it really helps 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 you. Um, so in um, so we talked about obviously you started out in your career, you've had this background, then you've built up your profile, you've got the work in football. One of the things that I was curious about is that I'm not sure if you're happy to talk about this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Mm. Is that one of the the, the 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 I think the characteristics of sports work that you've identified is that there's other more profitable areas that you could be doing work in, mm. right? Given your skill set, given the chambers you're in, how did you balance that? Uh, particularly when you were starting out, obviously the world's changed somewhat mm. in sport. Uh, there's much more money in sport than there was years ago. How did you balance that in your career development? I'm sure it's all relative to people now. You know, you've got to do a bit of either pro bono work or a bit of uh, very low cost at discounted rates. How did you how did you manage that? Because that's a difficult one, I think, for a lot of people to it, to manage. It, it is, and at first, certainly, I, I managed it simply by the fact that sports work was only a small part of my work. So, my bread and butter was from employment work, and to a certain extent, commercial work. Um, and so, I could afford to do a few sports cases now and then without getting paid so much or sometimes doing it pro bono um, and a lot of other people still do that and it's one of the ways to get into it. You have to you have to know when to transition out of that as well though because now all my work is sports work and I make a living out of it and I probably make as good a living as most other people at my level in chambers because a lot of it is commercial work. Um, and, and to get to that stage, you need to be able to charge for the work you do. Um, it, it's, I, I can still come across silks in other sets of chambers who uh, probably have a much higher hourly rate than I do, a commercial, very experienced, who will 
be able to compete with me on fees where they'll they'll offer to to work for half or less that I than I will in a big sports case because they really want to, the exposure of doing the sports case and they can do that because they're doing the other work that pays I can't do that because I earn my living from doing sports law work so you need to be able to transition but at first I think that the the main tip is you need to be able to earn your living and that may mean I think for most people 99% of people certainly for me it meant doing other areas of law uh, that sustain a practice that give you you know the wider areas that there's always work in um, and then doing the sports cases when you can I think that's I think that's uh, very good advice it's across the board you could say the same thing if you know like for solicitors for, for everyone, right? It's the same type of a very sensible approach and uh, I appreciate your honesty with that because, uh, you know, it's one of the things we talked about. Sometimes as an eagerness mm. uh, sometimes prevents people from being as honest as they should be about the volume of work they're doing in the space, which mm. then causes distortion, particularly mm. for for a younger or let's say less experienced people coming into the market thinking there's much more work there than there actually yeah. is, um, which is unhelpful. So I really appreciate that. Thanks, Nick. We haven't we prepared that, so that's quite <laughs> that's helpful. One of the things I've got, I want to ask you about some of your cases, your favourite mm. cases, but before we do that, one of the things I'm just curious about asking, how have you seen the market develop over over the the time between you came into now? What's the, what's the, what would you, how would you say is a, a sort of a real... What's, it, well, it, there's certainly been a huge growth in sports law work since my involvement and it does as with anything as you would expect it follows the economic development of sport the growth in particular of football and broadcasting money in the premier league um that it the more money there is in sport the more seriously people take conflicts the more space there is for lawyers and for lawyers to get paid um and it's now not unusual for me to be instructed in a case for a lower league club or even and i have for a few a a, a non-league club a, a, a conference club in a dispute that's worth a relatively sizable amount of money I mean, that that would have been almost unheard of 15 years ago um and also you've seen the change at the top end whereby for instance premier league football clubs a number of the big ones now have internal in-house legal departments that are as big as a small boutique sports law firm or bigger um and that that also creates pressures in the market as well but the market is much more sophisticated now it is much more developed there is much more work but I would always also warn people that there are more, there were and there remain more lawyers who want that work than there is that work. Um, and so you, 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 people shouldn't have an illusion that because there's so much money in the Premier League, um, clubs are falling over each other trying to look for lawyers. It's the other way <laughs> round, really, <laughs> to be frank about it. Um, but the work is there, and if you can get it, and if you can establish a niche reputation in a particular area, it, it's very helpful. I, I talk about football a lot. Um, it's not I do work in most other sports, and uh, I enjoy doing work in, in most other sports. The reason I have prioritised football is, firstly, it's a, it's a sport I love the most and enjoy watching, so it helps personally. But secondly, it's because if you're going to be a sort of full-time sports lawyer, have it as the 
nearly all of your practice. You need a sport that's big enough to sustain a practice and has the money to do so. And really, football's the only sport that can do that on an international level, yeah, in my it, view. Yeah, here, like you know, you might have in America, they've got their major yes, league sports. Obviously, yes, of or, course. In know, the US um, is different. It's yeah. one of the, it's interesting though because one of the things, that one of the points that I think can be overlooked, and again, it depends where people are in their careers. But the one thing, the consistent thing that I see, because you described it, it's a highly competitive market. You've got the smartest people in the world, generally, right, who are passionate about a particular topic, who are willing to, as you said earlier, mm. half their fees or yeah. more just to get the work because it's something they're doing in addition to what their, their mainstays. They, they get so much enjoyment from it that they want to do it. So that's a hugely competitive market. Um, uh, however, the people that I, and I've interviewed a lot of people now, and we'll continue to keep interviewing people about this. One of the consistent things I'm picking out from people is it's just their pure interest, that genuine interest. Mm-hmm. And then people saying, well, at the time there wasn't that much work in it, but I just, I just sort of followed it. And over time it's developed. And then they've helped. And I think this is one of the crucial things that often is not really acknowledged. The lawyers have actually helped develop a sport mm. or, you know, or a team or a club or, or a player for that matter. Yes. Um, so, so would you agree then that, that, um, you know, if someone's listening to it, maybe football's not their thing. Mm. They should still see what they see what they can do and try and help their sport develop. Absolutely, yeah. And you, as I say, you don't have to be a one hundred percent sports lawyer. There, there are very few people that are, and you don't have to be to enjoy doing sports law. There are a lot of people who have fantastic practices as employment lawyers or commercial lawyers or criminal lawyers who do a bit of sport. Sometimes in all sports, sometimes there are people who are just experts in horse racing, for example. Yeah. Um, and they know that sport and they love it, and that's great. No, absolutely. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so coming on to your favourite cases, because you're going to have some funny ones, I'm pretty confident. <laughs> uh, what would you say are your, are your sort of top... Let's go for your top two favourite cases, and let's go for your most unusual, and then go for some of the unusual ones. But okay. what, 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 was, um, what would be, your, say, your favourite cases you've worked on? Well, my, my, my two favourite cases are also the two cases that are, were both for my football club, although I've acted for many other clubs in interesting cases, and for QPR, the club I support, um, uh, in, in a number of other cases. But there were two cases in particular that are my favourite because... They were so stressful, but they were also so important in terms of the result that well, you couldn't help being so involved. The first one was way back in, I think, about 2011, 2012, when QPR, for the first time, looked like it was going to get promoted back to the Premier League for the first time in 20-odd years. So we were all very happy, and suddenly an FA charge came about third-party ownership in one of the players, Ali Forlane, an Argentinian player, one of the best players for the QPR side that year. And there was an enormous um, press uh, interest in the case. Everyone was speculating it would lead to a points deduction. It was the first third-party ownership case after the Tevez case. So it was a very high-profile case. And because of my historic links with the club, the uh, the owners phoned me up and asked me to act for the club in that case. And I then found that Adam Lewis, QC from my chambers, was on the other <laughs> side and thought, I better, I better get a QC involved because I was a, a middle junior back in those days. And I got, got Ian Mill involved as well. But um, that case ended up, it was an incredible case because we, it ended up having the decision announced on the last day of the season when QPR had its last home match, 
when they had and QPR were going to win the league if there was no points deduction. So they had the cup, the trophy, at the ground, ready to present. But they didn't know whether they'd be able to present it or not. Uh, and we had to rush from the decision to the ground. And I remember the police had been in, in some liaison saying if the club had a points deduction not to announce it at the ground because they were worried about a riot. Of course. Uh, and there was, um, you know... People told me that when the result was announced and QPR got off without a points deduction, we, we had a fine against us, but we we got we, we essentially disproved the main charge. When that result was announced, there was a bigger cheer that went up Uxbridge Road in Shepherd's Bush than there was during the rather boring match against Leeds <laughs> where, where we lost because we'd already got automatic promotion. Um, and it's rare that uh, a legal case gets cheers from football fans um, so it was a very stressful, it was a very interesting case because I had to have a, a, a gaggle of Argentinian football agents as witnesses and handling them wasn't always the easiest thing. There were some great characters in the case, um, but ultimately the result meant that the, the club could have promotion. So that, that, was, that has to be one of them that I'll always remember. And the second one was um, as a result of the second promotion of the same club, QPR, it got... Um, uh, fined or rather charged under financial fair play rules of the Football League. Um, that case only just settled last summer. And it, it, so far as I know, it's the longest running and um, highest in terms of fine uh, case in English football. Uh, it went on for about four or five years in an arbitration um, I remember because I was kept trying to get people to write about yeah, it. Yeah, and we can never <laughs> write about it. We can never speak because it's all confidential arbitration. A few things have come out, and I'm only allowed to say what has come out. But initially, when the club lost um, at, at the, the the first hearing, which is now about a couple of years ago, it was looking at a fine that would have been in, you know over forty million pounds. It would have been the biggest fine in world sport history, um, and would have been in danger of putting a, a football club out of business um, and we appealed that and eventually the case settled uh, and again it's a confidential settlement so I can't talk about it but uh, as you've Damn. seen the, cl <laughs> the club's been able to operate and uh, ha has emerged from that so um, one can take from that what one does but um, that, that was a case where we acted f again for QPR also for Leicester and Bournemouth two Premier League clubs challenging the very basis and legality of the third party, uh, sorry, of the financial fair play rules. Um, so it was incredibly interesting legally, but again, it was the implications of the case that made it a very memorable one for me. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. it's just a shame you settled. Not for the club, but, <laughs> yes. but I think some of the, the things that would have come out would have been great, uh, but we never, we'll never know now. Yeah. Um, and then, by the way, Sean, that's the problem with most of my work. It's behind closed doors. I can't talk about it. I can't report it. I can't even put it on my CV. What is, what, not, that, not that we plan to talk about this. But on that point then, what is your opinion on public disclosure? Because, you know, say, for example, UEFA, um, and it's in the amendment of the Wilder Code now, I think, in the latest one, that, that um, there should be public hearings. And after, yes. after the, um, what was the case? Yeah, the, uh, the, the Pexting case and yeah, um, Mutu. the, 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 the Cass decision, yeah. Mutu as well, and the, um, the, the decision of the... 
um, courts in relation to that and the European Court of Human Rights, in fact, which said in those types of cases, now remember there, they're particularly talking about disciplinary cases, so um, doping cases, yeah. for example, um, where the consequence of the decision may be that the athlete cannot work, uh, either for a year or two years or perhaps forever in a lifetime ban. Although I think the principle, by the way, must also apply to football clubs where the consequence of the decision is, for example, a club doesn't get promoted or gets a huge fine that affects its ability to play football. Um, and so what the European Court of Human Rights said in that case was in those types of cases, even if there's an arbitration clause, because of the consequence, if the athlete or the club, I think it, it, it must apply to as well, once a public hearing, it ought to have a public hearing. And as you say, UEFA has now um, started to change and allow some of that. I think there will be pressure on the English FA and a lot of national sports bodies and other international ones to do the same thing. Um, so, yes, I do think particularly in what we call regulatory, disciplinary sports hearings, they ought to be as transparent as possible. Um, that there are sometimes good reasons for confidentiality. The athletes themselves might want to, you know, innocent till proven guilty, keep the fact of a doping charge out of public until it's determined. Um, but it's very, in my view, very important for sport in regulatory cases uh, that there's transparency, that decisions are published, and that people can see um, that people are treated equally. And then, that and there's a level playing field. And on the, so that's an interesting point you make. And one of the things that came up with the recent uh, Football League stuff, right, was about settlement agreements. And it seemed to me, and maybe, you know, it's a naive view on my part, I'm not sure, but the the mechanism, one of the problems with, with uh, you know, membership associations is they have to get their members to agree to the regulations. And yes. part of them to get them to agree is that they have a mechanism, which is a settlement arrangement. Yes. Right? So for this very reason that there might be very contentious stuff in which they don't want the decision to come out or, you know, they, they can't agree. It's going to get very expensive in litigation to go through. So they have to the, have that mechanism. Yes. The, that the, the football league's a very good example, Sean, because it is, it's not a proper independent regulator. Uh, it is simply an organisation of all its members, and all the members are all the clubs, uh, the League One, League Two clubs and the Championship clubs, and they often have different interests, different economic interests, and the majority vote uh, will determine the rules of the Football League and the decisions of the Football League. And there are real problems with that approach. It's, it's almost uh, a cartel-type approach in many respects. Um, there's a good argument for greater independent regulation of sport. Um, and certainly with FFP in, in, in football, that, that was one of the problems that arose. Um, some competitors may be trying to hold back other clubs from investing. You've also got a lot of controversy now about the broadcasting deals that the Football League has entered into and whether that's in the interests of all the clubs and so on. It's super interesting. Um, I'm conscious of time, I'm looking at the time, but I, I, I want to carry on talking for an hour, but I've got some other things that, yes. I, that I wanted to ask you, but thanks. Like you, I, you know, when I, I interviewed Michael here as well, Michael Belloff, and he, he was very good like you in entertaining my questions. <laughs> um, so thank you. Um, what, what, what would be interesting, I think, for um, 
some people are looking to you know aspire to do the same reverse at the bar or as, as, as a solicitor. Um, could you give an indication now of what your sort of week looks like? Mm. How, do, how do you structure your week? And then I wonder if you could give some advice for people aspiring to sort of almost, in, I guess, emulate your, your career. Well, um, as I say now, I do 98% of my work is sports. Very rare I don't do any sport. But that is a recent thing. It's taken many years to, to, to get to that stage. And I think there's... Uh, in the bar, there's only two of us who do that much sports work, which the other one being Adam Lewis in this chambers, who was a trailblazer for for that. Um, and that work itself is divided between what I generally call commercial work and regulatory work. The commercial work is um, uh, disputes over sponsorship contracts or football player transfers or agents fees or... Um, the buying and selling of a club or or anything like that. Ticketing. Things yeah, like that. A- and that actually makes up more than 60% of my work. Nearly all of that is in arbitration. It's nearly all confidential. Uh, and then the remaining part is regulatory work, which is d- the disciplinaries, the players who get in trouble or the athletes with doping. Or I recently did the Ben Stokes case for the cricket board uh, arising out of the fight in Bristol or or a club breaking financial fair play. Uh, and that's perhaps more likely to have a high profile. Um, and that's probably about 40% of my work. In, in the last week, to answer your question, um, I've acted for two Premier League clubs, in a, one in a sponsorship dispute, one a dispute with a former employer, uh, employee. I've acted for two championship clubs, both again in commercial arbitrations, one in CAS and um, and one in uh, uh, FA arbitration. Uh, I've also been acting for one of the world's most famous boxers in two cases, again confidential arbitration, so I can't even say his name. Advised in a rugby matter, acted in a very high-value tennis agency dispute, advised a number of football agents, work for a Premier League player in respect to his image rights, and then finally, and this is the only one I can talk about, because all of those other are the confidential arbitrations. Um, I'm acting for Wayne Hennessy, the Crystal Palace goalkeeper, in relation to his FA charge, so a regulatory matter, uh, about a gesture uh, that he made at a Christmas party. Um, and so that's, uh, I don't know if that's a typical week's work, but it's, and one of the things you find with sports work compared to work a lot of my colleagues do is it's very high volume. There are lots of cases, but you're unlikely to be doing a case for six weeks in one court. Mm. They're, they're usually hearings of a day or so two, ha- so you're having to do a high volume. And how does that change your approach? So if you're going to, in, in a short answer, but how do you tackle that then? Because I do a lot of, you know, yes. I, I, you know, I struggle with this, you know, being overstretched on a bunch of areas, yeah. juggling multiple tasks yeah. in, in totally different areas. How do you, but you, your you, you're probably good, you're probably more suited. I yeah. find yeah, yeah, some yeah, of yeah. us are more suited for yeah, that. Absolutely. I'm more suited for it. Yeah. If I was doing an eight-week trial, <laughs> uh, I would not be the best person on the team. Absolutely, Because yeah. I would get bored of yeah, it. Absolutely. So, yes, it's challenging because you have to jump from one thing to another. Um, But if you're interested in it, it keeps you alive. You prefer doing that. Uh, One of the ways I think you cope is that you forget 
the last case you've done <laughs> almost a week later, even the names of the parties, because you can't fill your mind with all that stuff all the time. So yeah. you have to let it go. And then you have to remind yourself by looking up the documents. <laughs> I'm kind of the only one who struggles with that because I suffer from this when I'm, I'm seeing do. people now and I'm like, I, I constantly think of this all the time. I'm like, I know I spoke to them about something, but I can't remember what I spoke to yeah. them. I see so many people on a day to day basis. Um, finally, then. Uh, well, actually, yeah, there's two things I want to ask you. One's, uh, one's not sports or related, one is sports or related. Uh, what would your three top tips be for aspiring sports lawyers? Okay, well, the first one sounds really trite, but be a good lawyer. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> that's, that's more important yeah. than anything else is <laughs> be a good lawyer. And when I say be a good lawyer, I mean um, as much as possible in... A, a wide range of things but in something that's useful for sport don't just try and be a good sports lawyer be a good commercial lawyer be a good employment lawyer be a good regulatory lawyer if you can be good at all three even better because then you can bring something to it and you know the worst thing you can do um it, it you know i'm not knocking people who do this but if if you imagine you went to an interview and said I want to be a sports lawyer because I really love sport. Well, imagine that you're the person giving the interview. Surely, you know, they can think, well, any any fan could come and tell us that, yeah, but, yeah. but why would we give them absolutely. a job as a lawyer? Where's the value you're bringing? What are you bringing? Yeah, yeah. so be a good lawyer is the number one tip. The second thing is, um, and re related to that, before I move to the second one, if I may, related to that is a point I made before about being able to put bread on your table. So if you if you are a lawyer... Um, being able to work in an area that brings you income uh, and gives you the time to invest in sport as well. The second is obviously to get involved in law in sport and other organisations of a similar type, like Basel, which I'm also involved in, and network and write articles and go to conferences and do all that stuff uh, you need to do that in sport more than you need to do it in many other areas. You you need a high profile. Um, but do remember that you don't generally get work by having a high profile. There are lots of people out there who are brilliant at writing articles or they may even appear on TV, but it doesn't mean they get work because most of the work you get is um, by word of mouth in the industry because you've done a good job for someone and then they want you to do it again or they tell mm. a friend or an agent or whatever. Uh, and so the third tip would be if you get a chance to do a sports law case, do your real best at it. Do, do a really good case for the client so that the client next time someone asks them says, oh, I had her in my last case and she was really good go to her that's more valuable than any amount of marketing ultimately do you know what this is it's, it's really interesting because i think like as humans we have this innate ability to ignore some of the obvious simple things and mm. there was a, a a lovely chap luca from coda sport who's mm -hmm. now sent up a, a kind of for you sent up a, a, a football side to their business mm -hmm. their media agency mm. and um he gave that advice as well it was like you know he was a journalist before and he was like do a great job what you're doing and most successful people that I've met and I've had a privilege to meet uh, a lot of successful people now say the same thing. Mm. It's your rep that is your brand. Yes. Like do an outstanding job, even if it's not something you necessarily enjoy. Do an outstanding job because people will talk about it. You know, exactly. And, and, and that's more powerful. Yeah. I remember um, one of our friends, Tom Burrows, 
yes. right from who's now I mean incredible I'm going to get him on an incredible career trajectory mm. former cricket player etc and I used to give so much advice on people to how to market themselves because that's what I'm kind of good at and go oh you know you can write articles it's how you build your profile and he made me stop and reflect because I thought Tom hadn't really done that much PR in the sense of right he had written some really high quality articles but only a few yes didn't really you know raise his head and yet everyone was trying to hire him essentially yes. You know, and it was just purely through word of mouth that everyone it, had... It's absolutely right, Sean. I mean, most of the work I get in, from football are from people who are not solicitors. It's often the lay clients, or it might be in-house, um, but they might be club chief executives, they might be football agents. And I bet you hardly any of them have ever read any article I've well, ever written and wouldn't be interested well, here, well, in reading it. But well, here's the one thing I would say on that. And I think this is the, the, the one thing I would say on that. Um... There's a bunch of people I know I'm very pleased to say, like like boxing coaches who use law and sport articles yes. and others, right? Like, which yeah. is great. That that sometimes, particularly if it's in, in an underserved market, also one of the key factors is there's a big agency who said they review law and sport articles yes. before they instruct people sometimes, yeah. just to see who's doing what in the market. Yeah. If you do produce work of high quality, of written, you know, or you do contribute and say something sensible on television, and you don't overreach. Yeah. Right, you're you're, yeah. in your, you're in your sweet spot as such. That does get picked up, and it may not yeah. be that you get a direct instruction, but maybe people go, they note it somewhere and go. Oh. Yeah, absolutely right, and I strongly advise people to do all of that stuff. It, I, I say eighty, ninety percent of the work you get is not a result of it. Absolutely, but it, that's a result of word of mouth. But you have to have the work in the first that's place right. to get the word of mouth, and one of the ways you get it in the first place is doing all of those yeah. things. And also, you want to try and get the other twenty percent of work. So it is invaluable. Um, I wouldn't spend so much of my time always doing it unless I could see the value of yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. I guess you. Yeah, it's the balance. The key yeah. point is getting that balance exactly. right. And I think the other point you made about about making sure you can earn a living from it is important. And Kevin Carpenter raised this point years about three years ago and said that some people are under are actually harming the sports market because they're not actually charging for work that they should be charging for. Yes. And so, therefore, people get distorted yes. perception of what they, you know, what they could get out of, yeah. you know, in the wider market. Yeah. So that was a really good point. Finally, then, one of the things that we love about you mm. in the sports law community is you're one of sports law's characters, right? Because you're not one-dimensional for a start, and you're unashamedly um, interested in a number of other areas. In particular, one is photography. Yes. So if anyone follows you on LinkedIn and Twitter, so. I think people will enjoy seeing your work and now you've obviously got into, well, not obviously, but you've now got into painting as well. Um, I love this. I, I actually like it. I think you, you put a lot of photos out there. It's not what I expect from a sports lawyer, mm. but I like it for mm. that reason. Mm. Well, can you just, I'm sure other people, because no one else would ask you this, so I'm mm. going to ask you, what was your interest in photography? How did that start? Just to, just to sign off. Well, it, no, I think it is a, a good question, actually, because... Um, first of all, I, I was interested in photography long before I was interested in sports law or law and long before I was a lawyer um, and I, I probably my dream would have been to work in the creative field when I was younger but it's a harder and b I probably wouldn't have been earning a tenth as much <laughs> as I do now um, but the creative side um, and art generally has always been something that uh, interests me and, and inspires me I actually find that it's a really good thing to do if you're a lawyer, to do something like that. It doesn't have to be photography. It doesn't have to be drawing. It might be cooking. You know, I love cooking as well. It could be, it could be anything. 
But so much of our work as lawyers, particularly as barristers involved in disputes, is essentially destructive, by which I mean we're hired to defend or, or bring a claim and what, okay, there's some creative, you know, what think of good points, but a lot of what we're doing is knocking the other side down, finding holes in their argument. Um, and to have as something outside of that where you're being creative, where you're, you're not concentrating on beating somebody else, but on trying to make something nice or try, trying to make something beautiful or, or, or trying to convey a feeling through art or, or something of that sort is, I don't want to say good for the soul because I'll sound ridiculous, no, but, it's, 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 <laughs> but it is. I think it's good for, it's good for you yeah. to do something like that. Um, and not to be, and, and it would even be one of my top tips for someone who wants to be a sports lawyer, make sure you enjoy what you do and make sure you enjoy what you do outside of doing sports law as well because if you're just so focused on one thing in life, it can it can sometimes get you down and you can you know, lose the wood from the trees and so on. I think that's really solid advice. It's a really good point. I never really thought of it like that, but I must admit the other day I got, I get, sometimes I get occasionally I get a bit dejected mm. with sport because yeah. all the stuff we are focusing on is that very point it's anti-doping disputes a match fixing issue safeguarding you know stuff that some of it's quite heavy to deal with yes and you go wow like you know I think it's a really good point I think maybe it's one of the reasons I like doing podcasts because you're focusing on sometimes we're focusing on some some important issues like you know the Hakeem case we've, we had uh, with Brendan Schwab the other day Sometimes you are yes. doing that, but sometimes we're doing ones like this, which is like, how do you develop your career? Mm. How do we impact? Mm. A really good point. Thanks, Nick. An absolute pleasure. Like I said, this could be easily be two and a half hours. And you know, you didn't believe me when we started out, but um, gosh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, a real I was tri- looking at my watch. A, a, a real treat. Um, yeah, I said oh, I actually really enjoy your, your work. I think it's, it shows of kind of like the. Thank you. Um, I enjoy yours. <laughs> Uh, that cost me a lot of money if you knew his hourly rate (laughs) brilliant thanks thank you very much cheers well that's all we have time for for this show i hope you enjoyed the interview and remember you can follow us at law in sport on twitter you can follow me at spcott you can subscribe to our weekly email on lawinsport.com you can find out about the latest jobs the latest events we've got coming up and obviously Uh, lots of articles, peer-reviewed articles, I should say, features and other information on the latest issues and developments from the world of sport. Other than that, I hope you have a great day and thanks for tuning in. (laughs) 